This episode is sponsored in part by MKL Reads. MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH for free shipping on your first order. That's coupon code DOUBLE SPACE READ SPACE DISH, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Since day one, Gender Reed Knives have been the highest quality and the sharpest reed knives on the market, and Gender Industries has been a driving force in educating double reed players on how to sharpen and maintain their reed knives since it is the single most important tool in our reed making kit. Now, Genda has launched a full line of sharpening equipment to meet your sharpening needs. They are offering a wide variety of full-size and travel-size sharpening stones, strops, and compounds that can be utilized in the studio, the music hall, or on the go, and will make your sharpening better. You've got a good reed knife, now it's time to start using good sharpening equipment. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda Reed Knife maintenance kit, Reed Knife sharpening book, cutting block, and Reed tool roll. Visit them at GendaIndustries.com. That's J-E-N-D-E-I-N-D-U-S-T-R-I-E-S.com. Oh, and they're more than just Reed Knives. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Reed Dish a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Jackie, it's episode 22! Yay! It is now the middle of October. I feel like we're officially halfway through the fall semester. How are you doing? I'm good. We are officially halfway through. Yesterday was the um, week eight of 15. So we're over halfway. I am. I tell you what, I don't know how people who have a regular symphony job and a full-time teaching job do it. I know there are many people who do it. Um, but I'm doing some gigging in the evenings after working all day, and I don't know if it's just, I think they must be extroverts, and they, like, get energized from, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, because I am just, like, a baby (laughs) sucking my thumb in the corner, like, (laughs) I need to recharge, but... Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm sure, I'm sure it's all worth it in the end, and you're playing beautifully, and, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. True, true, true. So, this episode, um, I get to interview you, and, um, before we started recording, I did tell Jackie, listeners, that if there is any question that she does not feel comfortable answering, she can opt not to answer it, so. I have veto power. But I'm really excited to ask these questions. So I'm going to start with my favorite one. Oh, God, I'm scared. <laughs> what are you the most irrationally and hilariously afraid of? I cannot believe you right now. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is a leading question. This is like I'm going to get her to talk about this in front of the listeners. <laughs> All right. I'll bite. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> 
I am irrationally afraid of escalators. <laughs> okay, so a little backstory. When we went to New Hampshire with the trio to do um, a retreat at Avalok, we flew into Boston, and <laughs> Corey and I were just bopping along in the airport, and then we looked back, and, like, there's no Jackie. We're like, where'd Jackie go? We look, there she is, like, just staring at the escalator. <laughs> You're, like, psyching yourself up. You're like, I can do it. You're, like, taking little steps toward the escalator. <laughs> You're like, I can do this. I can do this. Here we go. And then taking little steps and then, like, jumping on the escalator really fast. <laughs> and you're like, what is wrong with her? <laughs> it's so scary. And I'm usually okay with ascending escalators. I get on and then I have like a counting mechanism that I do and just like stare fixated. It's like a woman in labor. <laughs> I, I look at this step like directly in my eyes. Yes. And it, it's literally like a woman in labor. I just fixate on an object and count and breathe until it's over. Um, but going from the top descending I almost can never do unless it's very narrow and I can hang on on both sides and it's very short. But if it's wide or if it's long, I'm taking the elevator and y'all just going to have to, you know, figure it out because that's what's happening. But you guys are very supportive of my irrational fear. I still think it's really funny. Oh, you're a good sport. Thanks for answering the question. Ah, exposed. <laughs> I feel so exposed. <laughs> okay. Who is your biggest celebrity crush? Oh, my gosh. I'm going to clobber you. Okay. <laughs> you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. It's fine. Just people are going to think I'm the biggest weirdo. As if they didn't know that already, Jackie. My biggest celebrity crush is the <laughs> actor Steve Buscemi. <laughs> The one who people, like, take his eyes and put it on other celebrities because he looks so strange with these bug eyes, apparently. I don't know. I think he is quite attractive and distinguished. And, yes, I'm all about Steve Buscemi. But my entire adult life, when people find that out, they're just, like, confused by it. And then people always, like, send me links of, like, look at this Steve Buscemi thing. It's, like, this fact that people know about me. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I have weird taste in men. I also love a Ron Howard. I love a Adrian Brody, a Kevin Spacey. I don't, oh, know. I don't think anybody would argue with Adrian Brody or Kevin Spacey. Well, fair enough. But Buscemi is my number one man. <laughs> He's on the cover of my, like, Teen Beat magazine. <laughs> so do you have a favorite piece that you love to perform? Um. I have a lot, but I think my ultimate, like, favorite, favorite piece to perform is the John Steinmetz Sonata for Bassoon and Piano. I feel like my life is just negotiating when I can perform that again. Like, okay, has it been enough time that I can reprogram the Steinmetz Sonata? I actually don't know it at all. I need to go listen to it. It's really, um, it's a really unique piece and it has a lot of um, really beautiful writing in it but it also has flexibility written into the score so that 
a, you can incorporate a lot of individual interpretations. So I feel like no two bassoonists would ever play that piece the same way. Mm. Um, and that's kind of a fun memory that I had. Um, I, you'll be surprised to know this, but I'm a little bit of a control freak, a little <laughs> bit of a type A personality. And shocker. <laughs> In my doctorate, um, Ben Quelio was working with me a lot on kind of loosening up and being a little bit more of a hard-on-my-sleeve musician, and this was one of the pieces that he picked to help me do that. Yeah, and so there's the third movement is um, designated pitches but not designated rhythm, and there's just this piano ostinato, and so the bassoonist just kind of decides, you know, what their concept of pacing and um, whatnot is, and so it was a really kind of cool learning experience, and I felt like I grew a lot with that piece, and so I love coming back to it and seeing how my approach changes, and audiences tend to really love it as well. It's just a cool, awesome, great piece, and John Simons has contributed so much to the bassoon repertoire in general, but that's probably my ultimate favorite. Uh, he has a really cool English horn piece uh, that oh you God. should check out. Yeah. I think it's it scenes from an imaginary opera. I think that's ah, right. Someone cool. is screaming at their <laughs> listening device, if that's not quite the right name, but I think that's what it is. But it's really great. It's a really great piece. Can I ask you a follow-up question? Yeah. Do you have a favorite memory of, like, a lesson or, like, with a teacher or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, this is a little, like, kind of personal, but connected to that um, – learning the Steinmetz and kind of learning how to loosen up and whatnot. Um, I had kind of this like watershed lesson with Benjamin Quelio during my doctorate where he talked to me about how my personal quest for control was kind of manifesting itself in my music and that I was really approaching it with the objective of technical perfection and emphasizing things that I could measure you know, how fast is it? How clean is it? How um, in tune is it? Which these are really great things, but yeah, all valid, all isolated. They don't make mm-hmm. music and they certainly don't make compelling music. And so it was kind of like we needed to move beyond that and move into the artistic realm and the interpretive realm. And I was kind of like, but I'm hanging on to my control. <laughs> and so there's this art gallery on the Iowa City Ped Mall. And he stopped the lesson and he said, the rest of the lesson, you're going to walk to the gallery and you're just going to go and you're going to contemplate art. Wow. And you're just going to think about what pieces you like and why you like them and why the artist might have chosen to paint that or sculpt that or use that color and how you appreciate that as an audience member. And that is what you're going to do. And when you're done, you can leave. And if you stay there three minutes, that's fine. And if you stay there three hours, that's fine. But I want you to go contemplate why an artist chooses to do what they do. And so I did. I walked there and I just, you know, very honestly tried to contemplate the questions that he wanted me to. And I found myself like, you know, very romantically in tears as I walked around. Mm -hmm. And um, I bought a little souvenir. They had these like handkerchiefs 
um, for sale in the gift shop. And so I bought him one and I bought me one and I keep it kind of like in my retool stuff. And so probably every six months or so I encounter it and I just kind of look at it and it's my touchstone for remembering those things that he is like, this is really where the art happens, not in how fast, how high, how loud. And yeah, it was just kind of this really watershed special bonding moment. And, um, yeah, it was my, probably my favorite lesson of my whole life. That is amazing. And good on you for actually doing it, you know? It, like, it would have been really easy to just be, like, blow in there for three minutes and then leave and be like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but you actually, like, did it with, like, your whole heart. And it and it cha- it probably changed you. That's yeah, awesome. definitely. Yeah, it was really oh, cool. That's such an amazing story. I'm so glad I asked. <laughs> so my shout out this week is a book that I just finished. It's called Leave Your Mark, Land Your Dream Job, Kill It in Your Career, and Rock Social Media by a lot wow. of people. What a title. <laughs> I know. Well, and the funny thing is the cover is like all this pink and like this Starbucks cup with lipstick on it. Oh my God. I, you know me, my good friend Donnie says, Jackie, you like books about power. And I'm like, oh God. (laughs) Um, But I do like reading these like professional efficacy books, like do your job as good as you can. Or like, I just kind of try to find inspiration where I can find it. And so this came up on my Goodreads recommendation. And so I got a hold of it and I was pleasantly surprised that despite the question questionable, law-worthy marketing. Um, It's actually probably the best book on professionalism and career stuff that I've read thus far. Um, I highly recommend it, especially to young people who are just embarking on the field, because she breaks down a lot of stuff that you kind of have to learn by hard knocks and trial and error. So like, if you have a conflict at work, how do you deal with that? And she isn't just like, fluff advice. She's like, okay, here's how you create a paper trail. And here's the type of language that you use. And um, if you have to ask your boss for a raise, how do you go about that? What is a timeline where that is reasonable to do? Um, what if you want to leave your job for another position? Uh, what do you do when you have the offer? What will you do when you're just applying and you think word could get out that you're applying? Like, how do you handle all of that stuff? And it's not all like negative stuff. Like, here's the bad stuff that's going to happen in your career. She also talks about about here's how to be smart um, and capitalize on opportunities. Here's how to make opportunities. Um, Here's how to make the most of an opportunity. So it's really balanced with the challenges you're going to face as a professional and how to embark on and capitalize on success. So I really, really liked this book. It was a fast, easy read with a ton of good advice. I highly recommend it. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. I want to go get it and read it right now. I'll send you my copy. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What's your shout out? Well, I watched the Lady Gaga documentary on Netflix. (laughs) What did you think of the documentary? Um, I had really mixed feelings about it, actually. Um, I thought for the most part it was good, but it didn't, like, go deep in the way that I, I wanted it to. I don't know. Like, there were some things that I really liked about it. Like, she's very vulnerable Mm -hmm. in it. So she, you know, you see 
her struggling with her issues of like chronic muscle injury and pain. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting. And she actually says, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have any money and I had to deal with this because you see her laying on, on like a couch, just like with three massage therapists working on her at the same time. And she's like, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have the money to spend on taking care of my body and hiring people like this so that I can function every day. Um, you watched it too. What did you think? I think my favorite part was watching her um, get the opportunity to do the Super Bowl halftime yeah. show. And then kind of the process of building toward this one really important performance that she really wanted to do well on and watch her um, – you know, prepare celebrate. for that and then, yeah, kill it and celebrate. That was kind of the biggest, like, inspiration point for me. I was like, okay, yeah, recitals coming up, Driftless Tours coming up. Like, I want to yeah. prepare like that and just give, like, awesome performances. Yeah, you're right. That was really cool. Dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reeds to discriminating double reed players of all ages and abilities, Double or Nothing Reeds has recently expanded to sell double reed tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. As authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. In addition, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. If you're looking for private oboe lessons but can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit doubleornothingreads.com for good quality and affordable reed-making supplies and accessories, lessons, instruments, and much more. That's doubleornothingreads.com. Janet Engel loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Engel Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that's right for you. Double Read Dish listeners can use the code DISH, that's D-I-S-H, all caps, for 10% off your first order at JanetEngel.com. We are so excited to welcome to Double Read Dish, Nick Stovall, Principal Oboe in the National Symphony Orchestra. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Our standard first question is um, to ask our guests to tell us a little bit about how you came to the oboe, your educational journey, and how you got to where you are today. It, it may be a big answer, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, I guess it depends on how much time you've got there. <laughs> um, well, I grew up in Austin, Texas, and um, I started playing the oboe in, in junior high. Um, I was really enamored with the sound of it, actually. I think that's probably a, a common answer you might get from people. Just, you know, the sound of the instrument was really intriguing, and uh, and that sort of got, got, got it off the ground. Um, 
I, for most of the time that I was in school, in uh, in junior high and high school, I, I was actually the only oboe player in my school. Um, I, I was self-taught at the beginning. I didn't have a private teacher. I mean, I learned to play the instrument at the beginning from a fingering chart, which um, I don't know if you all have had students that do that, but that can uh, really create some some pitfalls. I mean, I was doing things like uh, playing the half hole D with with my index finger up, you know. Uh-oh. <laughs> so when I when I first had a, a private teacher, she she had a lot of things to correct. Um, but I was really fortunate to have a great teacher, um, Beth Sanders, who uh, had played in the Austin Symphony. She's retired at this point, but um, I was just totally inspired by her. She really encouraged me and helped me to start read making. And um, at that point, things started to move pretty quickly for me. Um, she encouraged me to um, apply to the Interlochen Arts Academy, um, which I ended up um, attending and uh, and finished high school there. So I was a student of Dan Stolper. And... The big thing, one of the, well, lots of big things, but one of the biggest things about getting to go to the Arts Academy was to play in an orchestra uh, on a regular basis. That wasn't something that I got to do at home, and um, that really sort of cinched it for me. I mean, by that point, I was just so clear that what I wanted to do was pursue music and, and play in an orchestra, and it was just unbelievably exciting, and so that kind of set the course for me. Um, during my, my year at Interlochen, um, John Mack came and gave a master class and I was just bowled over by him. I, I was familiar with his recordings and, um, of course his reputation, but to meet him and to hear him play and hear him teach, it was just incredibly inspiring. And so, uh, I had, I had set my sights to go and study with him at the Cleveland Institute. Um, that first year, I actually did not, um, I did not get accepted to the to the Cleveland Institute, but I did get accepted at the Overland Conservatory, um, which I ended up attending for one year. Uh, Jim Caldwell, who was the teacher at that time, was in pretty poor health, and so our teachers for that first semester were Jeff Rathbun, Jonathan Fisher, and Betty Camise, who were the um, three of the oboists in the Cleveland Orchestra at that point. This was before Robert Walters had joined. Um, and so it was a really interesting time. with a, First year in college, a lot of new things, uh, three different teachers going on. Um, and because I had I had spent that summer in between high school and college, at, uh, I had attended the John Mack Oboe Camp. I had sort of further uh, made my connection with, with John Mack and he he agreed to see me about once a month, and so I, I would take the bus from Oberlin, and I spent um, a lot of time with, with John Mack that year, um, applied to the Cleveland Institute once more, and was accepted for my second year. So um, that was that was really another sort of big turning point for me. Um, I, I I felt um, really excited to be to be studying with with Mac, who I consider to be a huge influence on me. And um, and so I spent three years at the Cleveland Institute studying and, and got my bachelor's degree there. Um, and when I finished in Cleveland, I, um, I applied for a master's degree 
at Juilliard and uh, was accepted to, to continue studying with Mac there. Um, and I was set to do that, but during the summer between when I had finished college and was going to start my master's degree, uh, Mac got very sick. Um, his health deteriorated very quickly and he passed away. Um, so when I arrived at school in the fall, um, the Juilliard Oboe Department was going through a period of, of quite a bit of change with Nathan Hughes having just joined the Met Orchestra and the Juilliard faculty. Uh, so I ended up splitting my lessons between uh, Elaine Duvoss and Nathan Hughes for my two years there. And all the students had additional work with Linda Stroman and Pedro Diaz. So it was that, that was another really exciting time with a lot of um, good input from wonderful teachers, each one having their own particular approach. And it was, it was kind of my job to piece everything together and, and get the most out of my time there. So during those two years in New York, um, it was kind of an exciting time as far as orchestra auditions was concerned. There was a lot of moving around, a lot of uh, positions to try out for, and so I was able to uh, to get going with that and, and build momentum from, from one thing to the next. And in my second year, I was fortunate to win the first oboe job in the National Symphony, and um, so I've been there ever since. I'm just now starting my 10th season. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Going back a little bit, um, I love to ask um, our guests about uh, their experiences studying with these incredible pedagogues, and I'd love to hear more about John Mack's pedagogy and uh, his teaching style and what you took from his teaching that especially impacted you? Sure. Um, well, you know, he he was so much a traditionalist, and, and I think in the best sense of the word, I mean, he, he felt the, um, the weight and the um, the responsibility of carrying on a tradition. I, I mean, I think it, I, I feel really lucky to have, <clears throat> excuse me, I feel lucky to have had a direct connection to, uh, you know, to, to Marcel Tabuteau and to be able to kind of trace back a, a musical lineage that way. Um, so he, he felt the responsibility of what he had learned and was really almost kind of uh, an evangelist in, as far as, as taking that forward. Um, he used the Barrett book, um, and I, I, I use that myself when I'm teaching students now. Just, it's, I think, a wonderful teaching tool, a beautiful um, exposition of musical ideas, and, and you, you, you cover most everything uh, in doing that. It was also just, I mean, he was a fun person to be around. He was a, an amazing raconteur. He had, you know, a story about everybody and everything. He had a, a an image, a, a, you know, a, an analogy for everything. And he was, he was just a really entertaining person who had lived an amazing life in music. So um, I just, I wish that I had had the benefit or have the benefit to, um, you know, call on him in, in professional life. So you won your position at a relatively early age. Um, and I wonder 
if you felt that you approached your training with any um, special or different intensity or I guess maybe a better way to word it is what do you feel um, prepared you to step into such a large role um, so early on? How did you, uh, looking back, what do you think uh, put those pieces into place? <laughs> um, well, uh, that, that question sort of strikes me a couple different ways. Um, as far as how did I feel prepared to do that, you know, you know, looking back on it, I don't know that I was particularly well prepared. <laughs> you know, I, it was looking back. It's, I have more a sense that I was just so determined and so uh, excited to get where I thought I was going to go that I didn't look back and I didn't look to the left and I didn't look to the right. I was just sort of plowing ahead forward. And then when when I finally arrived uh, in Washington and I and I joined the orchestra, it was a it was almost a, a feeling of, you know, what have I gotten myself into in a way, you know, and not in a bad way, but just, you know, it, it became real, you know. Like now I have to do the job. <laughs> in a way. Yeah. And and just, just that, you know, you spend a lot of time or one spends a lot of time preparing to audition and preparing uh, repertoire. And there's a, there's a lot that goes into the front end of it about trying to get to a certain place. And then once you get there, the, the challenges of of the job and the challenges of, of, uh, of living that kind of a, of a musical life in an orchestra is it, it's a, it's a different set of circumstances. I, I did feel, uh, well, I was sitting next to players who, who had been in the orchestra longer than I had been alive. And I definitely felt that, um, mm -hmm. not in a, not in the way that they were making me to feel that way. I was actually, really warmly welcomed and encouraged as a young player. I mean, I, I feel fortunate uh, in that regard, but, but it, it did, it did occur to me that, um, I was, I was in a totally different situation. <laughs> um, something that struck me from your answer was, um, you took the auditions and then you won the job and then you had to do the job. And I'd love to know, what are the differences between winning the audition and playing the music um, that, in a way that wins the audition and the doing of the job, if there is a difference? Oh, I think there is definitely a difference. Um, and I think there, there are certain aspects to both scenarios that are, um, you know, maybe – Easier and more difficult, if, if you can say that. Playing an orchestra, you have the inspiration of the people around you, and you have the, the lines that you're playing with and um, playing over top of, <clears throat> excuse me, playing over top of um, if you're playing a solo line. And, and so there's this interactive kind of situation there, which can be distracting, but it can also be inspiring. And it's just a totally different situation there. In an audition situation, you know, it's a matter of of generating that yourself, that you are responsible for the entire musical product there. You're alone on a stage. You're playing the one line out of context. And your your job is to give the, the atmosphere of the complete product, you know. Um, 
So in a way, you have a whole lot more control in an audition situation, theoretically. <laughs> and um, so, I w- you know, going uh, moving through school and uh, working towards orchestral auditions, um, I was I was much more focused on myself. And in professional life, I'm more focused on the people around me and interacting with them and supporting them and being supported by them. So I, I don't know that's if that answers point. your question. No, that's a great point. That's a great point. I hadn't thought of it that way. Do you have any um, tips for preparing for auditions? Our listeners are always really eager when we have a orchestral player on to hear about audition strategies and that type of thing. Yeah, you know, it's I look at it as as a journey of getting to know yourself actually i mean it's you're you're preparing to do this one very specific thing but it permeates pretty much every aspect of your life you know <laughs> anybody that's um that's taken an orchestral audition knows that feeling of of it um, getting closer and closer and your energy and your attention is pretty much entirely consumed by this and so you you examine aspects of not only your musical preparation but you know your physical health and well-being and uh you know are you getting enough sleep are you eating well are you getting exercise and 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 everybody has a slightly different uh everyone has slightly different needs in this regard so you know i would say not only focus on musical preparation, but but getting to know yourself and what you need uh, to feel at your optimum on the day. I'm sure you've been on a lot of audition committees. And um, what would you say are the things that most commonly detract from candidates' performances? And what are, on the other side of that, what are some things that really make a candidate stand out in a good way? Sure. Um, unfortunately, it's uh, it's surprising the degree to which rhythm and intonation can um, suffer in in auditions, and whether that's um, I would say most of the time it's probably a matter of nervousness, uh, you know, feeling ill at ease in the moment, rather than some sort of a lack of preparation. Because I mean, there's so many fine players who spend so much time um, working on these aspects, but, but these, the, the really rhythm and intonation, if those things aren't totally solidly in place, even in a pressure situation, then, um, and an audition can, can just fall flat, unfortunately. Um, on the other end, you know, when those, when those basic things are in place, if more than that, you have a musical point of view, personality that you that you really are uh you know telling a story carrying a message as as kind of cliche as that sounds when you really hear somebody doing that it makes you sit up in your chair it makes you uh it makes me put down the pad of paper you know the best auditions that i have listened to on on various instruments um are the ones where i haven't really written anything down you know it's it's beyond that point you don't you know quibble with you know the length of a note or or you know something was a little bit out of tune it, it's it's beyond that it's it's uh it's it's on another level and and you're experiencing a um it's it's a musical experience that 
transcends an audition, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So earlier you talked about being inspired by your colleagues in the moment of performance, and I'd love to hear about some of your favorite memories of a past performance, maybe with the NSO or or otherwise. Sure. Um, Well, I've been very lucky in my job at the NSO to go on a number of tours, uh, national tours and international. When I joined the orchestra, um, we were in the habit of going on what we call the national residencies, which were trips that the orchestra would take to a place in the country that was maybe underserved for classical music. And um, unfortunately, that program has since been discontinued. But my first three years in the orchestra, we took trips to um, Arkansas, Kentucky, and West Virginia. And um, those were amazing experiences. I mean, we would play in high school gymnasiums, and we would play chamber music in local libraries, sometimes where, uh, you know, there were more people on the stage than there were in the audience. But the people, <laughs> the people that would come to these performances were so excited to, to see us and to hear us play and to talk to us. And so... Uh, Early on, that those are really fond memories, and those were bonding experiences between me and my colleagues, and so those are those are good memories. Um, the international touring has been really exciting too, uh, getting to play in some of the most beautiful concert halls in the world. Um, our most recent tour was to Russia this past spring for the uh, Rostropovich Festival in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Um, this would have been uh, Mrslav Rostropovich's 90th birthday this year. So his daughters have um, have organized a festival, and um, they invited the NSO to participate this year. Um, and and so we played uh, concerts, two concerts in Moscow, one in St. Petersburg. And I have to say it was really inspiring and special to perform um, on that tour of the Shostakovich Eighth Symphony for a Russian audience in St. Petersburg in the concert hall where the piece had been premiered. Wow. That was really um, an amazing experience. Um, as you've grown into your role with the NSO, have you um, had experiences with performance anxiety and have those feelings changed over time? Uh, Yes. The answer for that, of course, is yes. I think everybody has uh, some some experience with this. And maybe the most important thing to do is is to acknowledge it and be aware of it. You know, don't try to sweep it under the rug, but to just be kind of chipping away at it all the time. And at least in my own case, I feel like I go through periods of relative ease and periods of difficulty. And uh, it's been important for me not to take the periods of ease for granted and then to understand that the periods of difficulty aren't permanent. Um, Like most things, it gets better with practice, uh, but self-awareness and patience with yourself help a lot. I love that. Uh, could you talk to us about your approach to reed making um, generally? But I would also 
assume that reeds don't behave the same in Arkansas as Moscow. <laughs> and so kind of uh, how does touring impact that? You know, the audience expects the same quality of product regardless of um, travel, fatigue, environment. And so how do you approach your reed making with those considerations? Yeah, so that's a good point. Um, a few years ago, we took a South American tour and, well, it's Central America, South America, and the first stop was Mexico City, which is something like 8,000 feet up. <laughs> and then the rest of the tour was in Argentina and Brazil and stuff, you know, n nowhere else were we going to be that high. So uh, I remember I, I brought a few different, I brought, I brought a bunch of different reads in, in different stages of completion. Uh, but ended up just basically starting from scratch. And I, I think the con the read that I played the concert on, I had made that afternoon. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you have to be flexible and you have to be, uh, you know, kind of willing to roll with the punches a little bit. Um, and so speed is is pretty important to me, you know, be, being able to ascertain if this piece of cane is going to work um, and then if not, you know, discard it. So... So in general, with reed making, I try to be as objective and dispassionate as possible. I want them to, I want the reeds to be able to do as much on their own as possible. So I'm not working overly hard, and uh, so I can focus on the much more interesting task of of making music. Um, but the, even at home, I think the the idea of having a, a lot of different reeds in various stages, uh, you know, some that are raw blanks that I can pull out if I really am in a bind, um, reads that are kind of along their way in, in development that maybe haven't reached their peak yet, some reads that I, I know I can take it out and I can play and I can feel like myself, and then other ones that I've kept around that are perhaps beyond their prime that uh, I can practice on or I can refer to if I kind of get off track. How do your read choices change from style to style, you know, going from Mozart to Brahms and contemporary music and things like that? Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, I do use different reads for different things. Um, of course, I don't think anybody could um, – well, I mean, how nice it would be if you could make all of your reads all the same all the time, but <laughs> – <laughs> But but it's it's true that you know for for a Mahler symphony you wouldn't use the same read that you would use for a, a Mozart piano concerto. Um, so again, the idea of having a bunch of different choices and being able to kind of uh, refine and and finish up the one that is going to probably be the best thing for the moment. It's that's that's a, a good tool to have in your in your uh, toolkit. Could you talk to us about your uh, practice habits, how you balance, you know, if you have a concert that day, um, preparing this music to the highest level, if you have a warm-up routine, how do you make the most of your practice time? Sure. Um, well, you're right that, that practice time sort of has to flex to meet the needs of the, of the day and the week, so I'm I'm cognizant of that. The, the priority for me, uh, the most important thing, uh, are the concerts and the rehearsals. Um, so my energy and my focus are geared towards that. So if it's 
if it's a day like for us Thursday usually is a there's a morning rehearsal and an evening concert um so I'm really I probably wouldn't practice much I would warm up in the morning go to rehearsal probably leave the oboe in its case for the afternoon mostly warm up again for the concert and, and then play the performance so that's not a that wouldn't be a day to really get a lot of of, of uh, focused practicing done necessarily so so then it just sort of moves to other days in the week and I'm trying always to look forward um, if there's repertoire that needs attention coming up or if there's some sort of a special project a chamber music concert or a, a solo performance or something like that that I, I, I'm trying all the time to uh, to keep that in mind it's a little bit of a juggling thing and and it, it's I learn from my mistakes you know if I, if I get to a certain situation and I think well I, I kind of overdid this or I didn't really give this enough attention then I can I can I'm trying to learn from my mistakes in that regard would you tell us some of your strategies for preparing um, such a full season every year do you do a lot of listening or the, over the summer do you play along with recordings and you know what advice would you give to students who are learning this repertoire for the first time Yes, I think um, both of those things are great ideas. I am somebody that tries to to do a little bit of work, a lot of bit of work um, ahead of time. Um, it's amazing to me how once you pick something up and and work on it a bit and then put it on the shelf for a while, how it has a has a way of kind of progressing on its own when you pick it back up. That you know, it's not that you left it exactly where it was. Um, I'm getting to the point now uh, happily that that things are coming back around for second and third and even fourth and fifth uh, times for me repertoire in the orchestra so not everything is brand new so I have the luxury or the the uh, I have the um, the ability to kind of draw on past experience playing these pieces but if something is completely new I do try and get a look at it well ahead and um, and and do some homework on that. Playing along with recordings is a good idea. You get a, a fuller sense of um, it's it's the closest thing maybe to actually sitting in an orchestra and and playing the piece. Um, I would just caution people to be selective about the recordings that you're listening to, especially mm. for pitch level. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can you can easily get yourself a little uh, um, messed up if you're listening to something that's at a, a very different pitch level no matter how amazing the recording is if it's if it's at a drastically different tuning pitch than what you are used to or what your orchestra is going to do then that can maybe bring in a few problems that you don't need good point what are some of your favorite pieces to play um, in the orchestral repertoire uh, that's a hard question uh, because there's just so much. <laughs> um, I have to say, and I, this is kind of my stock answer when people ask me that, and it, um, it's, I think one of the best things that I get to do as an oboe player in an orchestra is to play Brahms. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think there's any other composer who uh, requires but also invites us to play with such breadth um, in throughout the range of the instrument um, it's it's a it's a pity that there's no Brahms chamber music but 
the flip side of that is that we get some of the most beautiful melodies in, uh, in really in all of orchestral music, I think, in, in the Brahms symphonies and the concertos. And I just, anytime there's, there's Brahms on the season, I really look forward to that. Is there anything that you haven't got to play yet that you'd really like to? Oh gosh, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, I tried to do a little bit of uh, preparing before we talked, and I, that's, not a, that's, not, that is, that's not a question that I considered. We've gone off script. <laughs> I think maybe as we've been talking, you've been able to tell some of the ones that I've written a little bit of, of a response to and the ones that I've fished around for. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't get to play a lot of opera, um, and that's mm-hmm. something that I always look forward to. In, in the summers, the NSO collaborates with the Wolf Trap Opera Company, which is mm-hmm. about half an hour outside of D.C. In, um, in Vienna, Virginia. And so if nothing else, we usually do one opera a year. Sometimes during the main season, we'll do uh, a little uh, – we'll do some opera, um, depending on – sometimes there are um, – Kennedy Center festivals or something like that. So um, I've gotten to play some of the opera repertoire that way, um, but not enough of it as I as I would like to. So we uh, we played uh, the Rosen Cavalier a few years ago um, in the in the main season, and Strauss opera is something that I wish I had a little bit more experience playing. There's, that repertoire is so rich and there's uh, so much there. I, I just wish that I, that's something I could access a little bit more. Basically what I got from your answer was that you summer in Vienna. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Virginia, I guess. Um, I would like to know what are some of your favorite things to do for self-care and related, um, how do you achieve or attempt to achieve work-life balance? <laughs> um, well, I'm not sure that I do achieve that. Um, often it feels like my work is my life, and, and that's maybe not necessarily bad. Um, a lot of the time it, it doesn't feel like work because I get to play some of the most uh, gratifying and thrilling pieces of music ever written with Excellent colleagues. Um, so, as far as balance is concerned, it's, it's not always it's not always balanced, and it's it's uh, it, it's heavily skewed towards uh, music and, and life in an orchestra. Um, but you know, you do have to make concessions to the fact that you're a human being. One has to make concessions to that. So, uh, I try to get good exercise. That's something that I um, if that if that's um, if that falls by the wayside, then other things start to suffer. Um, and that's also it's a good it, it's uh, I've met friends uh, you know through through exercise. One of my best friends actually was my personal trainer for a while, and now we've become friends. And so um, and colleagues in the orchestra, um, you know, we I have I've spent time outside of of work, you know. We have um, gone to classes together and that sort of thing. So that's that's fun and that's that's a nice um, balance. And of course, it's also it's the nice byproduct is that you're you're doing something good for your body. Um, in the last couple of years, I have really gotten into the Headspace app. I think some of your previous guests have mentioned this, mm-hmm. and it's 
that's that's a really valuable tool i think actually it's it's you know i often think of my phone as something that is uh, creating more stress and anxiety in my life uh-huh. so it's nice to have <laughs> have something on there that actually decreases that a little bit <laughs> This question is also off script, but so feel free to <laughs> veto if you don't want to answer. But do you have, as you look back, any um, embarrassing musical moments or like a scary musical moment on stage that would be fun to share? Oof. Embarrassing <laughs> but fun. Uh, let's see. Well, fun for us yeah. to listen to. Maybe not fun for you. you. Fun for us. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I mean, maybe funny things that were sort of funny in the moment. I don't, so, um, there's, there's a chamber music series at Mount Vernon, which is, um, south of DC, um, a little ways. Maybe you can get there from the Kennedy Center in about 20 minutes. It's, um, it's a beautiful drive, um, across the Potomac and then going down south a little bit. And, um, there's a chamber music series there through the year that the NSO plays on. And during my first year, um, I was invited by some colleagues in the orchestra to play the Prokofiev Quintet, the, so for oboe, clarinet, violin, viola, and double bass. And I was, I was very excited to be asked, and I thought it would be great. And um, so we rehearsed, and we, were go, we, we went down there for the performance. And um, the place there that they have the performances is it's kind of a small it's it's more of a lecture hall than really a, a, a music venue this the audience is quite close to the stage the stage is pretty small um and it's just it's very intimate feeling which you know can be a positive or a negative but um the audience there for the most part is um you know, they they go for the series, not for the repertoire. So, you know, they they buy their tickets at the beginning of the year because they know that the National Symphony is giving a a concert. Uh, the National Symphony players are giving a concert there. So, long story short, they the people there probably were not particularly interested in hearing the Prokofiev Quintet, which is I, I think it's a, a beautiful and wonderful piece, but. Maybe not beautiful in the same way as the uh, Mozart or Quartet or something like that. So anyway, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we get out there onto the stage, and I'm sitting out on the on the edge there, um, opposite the, the violin player, and we're just a few feet away from the audience. And, and we we start playing, we we get going in the piece, and not more than maybe a couple of bars has gone by, and the person that's immediately to my left says in full voice. Oh my! <laughs> so um, that was memorable, and it, 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 it took a lot to you know just keep going and and uh, and ignore that a little bit. And you have the whole piece to play. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was just starting. You know, that would be great, like, on a website, how people have quotes of, like, thing reviews that people have, you know, so-and-so place with clear tone, blah, blah, blah. You're going to be, oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> what advice would you give to people who aspire to have a career like yours? I would say uh, that you just have to kind of keep going. Um, I really like the answer that 
Martin Schoen gave to this question um, in one of your previous episodes that I think he said something like, there's a lot to be said for putting one foot in front of the other. Um, that is, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, you have to keep going. You have to keep seeking out opportunities to improve your playing and uh, improve yourself. And um, there's a lot to be said also for finding people to play with that, are better than you, you know, because that helps you to get better. You hear things in other people's playing, not just oboe players or bassoon players, but players of any instrument and singers. Um, just coming into contact with other people, if you allow it to, it can really be stimulating and helpful to you. Um, and and try to get along with the people around you. There's a lot uh, that goes into, I mean, if, if you're somebody that is easy to get along with and to, to people enjoy playing with you, then you're going to get more opportunities as well. So so just to, to try and cultivate that a little bit. This has been an awesome interview. To close, could you tell us what upcoming performances you have on the docket that you're excited about? Sure. Well, I'm very excited about uh, getting to play the Mozart Oboe Concerto with the National Symphony, and that's coming wow. up. Wow. In- yeah, that's going to be June of 2018 uh, with um, our past music director, um, Christoph Eschenbach. He's coming back for a, a two-week festival, so I'll play the Mozart Concerto as part of that this coming June. And um, also looking forward to a chamber music performance in the Kennedy Center. Um, it's a big French program that includes the Francais Quintet Number no. 1, wood, Woodwind Quintet, and the Poulenc Sextet, and that's in January. So, Oh, my. Well, yes. uh. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. Hopefully those pieces won't elicit that response. <laughs> Nick Stovall, this has been an awesome interview. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks. I hope that there's some good stuff in here. So we hope you enjoyed that interview with Nicholas Stovall. Don't forget to like us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can find us at our website, Galit. Where can they listen to us? You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, all of the uh, YouTube, uh, anywhere where you would normally find your favorite podcast. And we always love hearing from you, so go ahead and send us an email or a tweet or an Instagram message <laughs> if you love the show. <laughs>